Hello, I'm Alex Rakeen. I'm a barrister at Third Known Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity law. And in this session, I want to think with you about the Court of Protection. What is it? What does it do? How to give evidence to it? And when do we have to go to think about going to the Court of Protection? So here goes. So what is it? Well, the short description is it's a specialist court charged with determining questions in relation to those who may lack capacity to take their own decisions. I would just emphasize it's very unusual to have a specialist court doing this. In fact, it's one of the only courts that I'm aware of that is specifically charged with this. There are many other jurisdictions where there are judges who sit in other courts who will, as part of their work, think about mental capacity matters or mental capacity equivalent matters and there are many other jurisdictions where there are tribunals who might think about mental capacity but to have a specific specialist court court of protection is very unusual let's break down what it does though let's break down its key tasks so its first job is to think does the person who is always known as p p for person not p for patient Whenever somebody thinks P stands for patient, I always get worried about whether they really understand, for instance, what mental capacity is and, what the, and that we don't have a status-based approach to incapacity. The mere fact that someone is maybe a patient in a psychiatric hospital does not mean that they do not have capacity to take decisions about all relevant matters, for instance. So the key task to decide, does the person have capacity to take a specific decision or decisions? Or do they lack that capacity? I paused on have because there are circumstances under which you could go to court with the sole reason to ask is for a determination. Do you think this person has capacity to take a decision? For instance, capacity to consent to sexual relations. No one can take a best interest decision if the person lacks capacity to consent to sexual relations, can't take a best interest decision to consent on the person's behalf. So capacity there is critical. And sometimes it's really important that the public authority comes to court to get it made clear that the person has capacity to consent to sex. So the first thing is, does the person have all that capacity to, to, take, uh, to take a relevant decision? If they don't have capacity to take that decision, then either the court can make the decision on their behalf and in their best interests, or appoint a, a deputy to take the decision or decisions, again, in their best interests. Can I emphasize about something really important here? If we're outside the court zone, then normally nobody would be making decisions in the person's best interest, wouldn't themselves be making decisions. As we looked at in the best interest session, there, People will be trying to reach the decision that's in the person's best interest, but they're not standing in the shoes of the person making the decision for themselves. The exceptions are if the person's appointed an attorney to do that, or the court has appointed a deputy, or the judge themselves. If the judge is making the decision, it is a fiction as if the judge is themselves on behalf of the person saying, I consent to this treatment. I refuse this treatment. I want to see my mother. I don't want to see Mr. Jones. Really important there. So the court is making the decision for the person themselves or appointing a deputy to do so. The court is always told, has to think about making the decision for itself first rather than appointing a deputy. Next key task, declaring whether acts done or to be done are lawful or not lawful. This is really a hangover from how people used to think about things before the Mental Capacity Act came along. And there it was all about declarations of lawfulness. Now it's much more focused on making the decision for the person, the judge making the decision for the person. 
Fourth key task, considering challenges from dolls authorizations, not always appeals, because it's not always the person or someone on their behalf challenging the authorization. It could also actually sometimes be the local authority saying, well, we've granted the, author the authorization, but we are not entirely convinced that, for instance, the person does lack capacity. Could we please get a definitive determination from the court? Because that's the only place you can get a definitive determination as to capacity. Then a last key task is to think about matters relating to powers of attorney. Was the power of attorney valid? Were the terms within it, within the appropriate terms that can be granted within a power of attorney? Is the attorney acting in the person's best interests? Is the um, attorney making gifts within the scope of the authority of the attorney's powers? So those are its key tasks. How does it do its job? Well, first and foremost, there are different levels of jobs different levels of judge rather. First tier, so-called tier one, are district judges. They here, they are the, 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 the most numerous judges. Um, above them sit circuit judges, so-called tier two judges. Above them sit uh, high court judges sitting in the court of protection, so-called tier three judges. The high court judges are the ones who tend to hear the serious medical treatment cases or the really complicated and high stakes welfare cases. Although I would emphasize district judges routinely hear extremely um, serious cases in terms of consequences for the person. Where do they live? Who do they see? Who do they have contact with? What should their care plans be? So it's not that serious cases are heard by high court judges, not serious cases by district judges. I would emphasize most of the court of protections work, about 95% on an, it sort of varies year to year, is uncontentious, paper-based, so-called box work. So in other words, that's not decisions being made by, hear, uh, by way of hearings, um, and indeed frequently now made by what so-called authorized court officers, civil servants doing their job under the direction of a judge relating to property and affairs. That's someone needs a deputy appointing uh, to manage their money because they don't have someone to do it for instance. And then for cases which go to hearings, um, one thing I would just want to flag up are the case pathways introduced in the practice direction you can find on the Court of Protection web, uh, handbook website most easily, which talk through in detail how the court proceeds. So what it will do before a case comes to court, what sort of things you need to be doing before you go to court, for instance, trying to resolve it, the issue by way of mediation, by way of alternative dispute resolution, what information you have to provide to court, and then on the welfare pathway, the case management hearing, and then taking that further forward so the judge can make sure they've got the information they need before them in order to decide the case before them. So the case well, uh, pathways for welfare cases, for property and affairs cases, and for mixed ones set out in practice direction, which is, is the sort of route map if you have to go to court. So just talking a little bit about some of the distinctive features. One of them is the participation of the person. Historically, and still in property and affairs cases, the person concerned wouldn't be joined as a party, which always when I started doing this work uh, before the Mental Capacity Act came in, and at the beginning of the Mental Capacity Act uh, regime, I always did find very odd that the person wouldn't automatically be made up as a party. There are proper reasons for that, especially in property and affairs cases where really administrative authority is being sought and it would add complexity and it would, frankly, it would add expense for the person concerned for them to be made a party. Because if they are a party and they aren't able to conduct the proceedings themselves, someone needs to act as their litigation friend and that litigation friend will very often have to instruct lawyers. 
which in property and affairs cases, you can see on that last bullet point, the person concerned would be having to bear the costs. Um, in most welfare cases, the person concerned will be joined as a party now, especially if there's any element of contention. The court had been making huge strides before COVID-19 came along in terms of trying to improve participation of the person. There's practical guidance that Mr. Justice Charles, the former Vice President of the Court of Protection, had issued, uh, which you can find on the Court of Protection Handbook website, as to how practical steps could be taken to secure their participation, whether that be when they came to court or whether, for instance, in some cases, the judge will go and see them. COVID-19 has made that more complex, but it's still a hugely important matter for judges to consider. One enormously other, really other thing which is very important to realise, because people don't always realise this, the Court of Protection has to choose between the options which are actually available to the person. And those options are frequently going to be the result of other people's decisions. For instance, people making decisions under the CARE Act as, as to how their needs are to be met, or medical treatment decisions are going to be made in the first instance by the clinicians deciding what's appropriate, clinically appropriate. The court can't force clinicians to do things they don't consider to be clinically appropriate. They can't require, require people doing their job under the CARE Act or the Social Services and Wellbeing Act to spend more money. What the court can do, though, and does routinely do, is probe the reasoning as to why things aren't on the table, and they can do that very robustly. Proceedings were traditionally held in private, but pre-COVID-19 had been swapped to be holding, held in public subject to reporting restrictions. COVID-19 has made that much more complex. The court is still working through precisely how it can, can secure proper public and media access to remote hearings because the Court of Protection is very well aware that serious matters are being decided within the court and subject to proper reporting restrictions to maintain the sensitive, the confidentiality of sensitive information relating to the person, it's very important the public understands why the Court of Protection does what it does and how it does what it does. You can find more information about how the court is trying to steer that through on the Court of Protection Handbook website. Costs, I won't talk about in any detail here, except to say that their default cost provisions in welfare cases, the default position is that everybody bears their own costs. So there aren't, unless people have, as it were, misbehaved, that's a layman's term, you bear your own costs. In property and affairs cases, the person concerned bears the costs of everybody. Those are, can be uh, departed from if there's proper reason to do so. Evidence. The most important single point I can make uh, about evidence is that the Court of Protection is meant to be an inquisitorial jurisdiction. They're not meant to be winners. They're not meant to be losers. That's why there aren't claimants and defendants. They're applicants and respondents. And your job, if you're appearing before the Court of Protection, is to make sure the judge has before them the evidence they need to decide whether the person has or lacks capacity to make the decision. And if they don't, what's in their best interests? That means the obligation is upon you if you're appearing before the court, for instance, in particular, to show what practicable steps have been taken to support the person to take their own decision. And evidence about the person's wishes and feelings. Can I please emphasize something massively important, partly because I really hate it when I'm in court and I see that someone has been misadvised. Never, ever, ever try and win the case on the evidence if you're a professional. If it's a difficult case, it's a difficult, knotty issue about capacity, best interests, lay it out in detail. So why you think it's pros and cons, 
and then come down and say, on balance, this is why, for instance, I think option A is in this person's best interest, option B isn't. Or this is why I think this person has capacity, this person doesn't have capacity. If you do that, the court will respect you as a fellow professional. If you try and tailor it by, by not giving the evidence to the court, which shows for instance, there might be complexities in contact, but they're good days and bad days. You only lay out the bad days. A, you're not doing your job, which is to put all the proper evidence before the court, and B, you'll be found out because the records will be before the court and you'll be cross-examined as to why you tried to hide the stuff which didn't make your case. You look um, unprofessional and the judge, I'm afraid, at that point just stops listening to you. Sometimes the court is going to have to resolve factual disputes by way of so-called fact-finding hearings. The, the courts only resolve that, do those, if it's necessary to resolve the factual dispute in order either to reach a conclusion about capacity or best interests. And then the court has got its own tools to try and get its own information over and above requiring people to give it stuff. If they're the parties, they can get a general visitor to go and see the person or a special visitor, a psychiatrist, and they can also ask a local authority or NHS body to provide a report. That's part of the courts trying to get its evidence as, an, as inquisitorial to try and make sure it's got all the full evidence before it. So lastly, when to go to court. This is a very short slide covering quite a complex area. And this is definitely not legal advice, it's an intro. The, very e the easiest way of thinking about it is disputes which can't be resolved otherwise. So for instance, by way of alternative dispute resolution. Really important there, you need to identify the point at which actually you've got to go to court because the process of trying to resolve the dispute is in and of itself adverse to the person. Don't wait so long trying to, for instance, get consensus about medical treatment that the person loses the opportunity to have the medical treatment that they need. Going to court may not, is not, shouldn't be seen as a failure. It's where it's necessary to do so. High stakes decisions. Sometimes there may not be any dispute. It's just that the consequences for the person are so serious and the issue is so finely balanced, the court needs to be involved. Medical treatment, the Supreme Court gave guidance in a court case called NHS Trust and Why, and the Court of Protection gave guidance in January 2020 that you can find there, which talks in terms of fine balance, the way forward not being um, clear at the end of the decision-making process. Something might appear very difficult at the beginning, at the end of the decision-making process, the way forward is clear. At that point, you don't automatically have to go to court. And then sometimes there are situations where decisions, the authority is just required. For instance, an attorney can't make a gift outside the scope of their powers without the court saying so. So there's more material on there, in particular an article I wrote on my website, uh, which I'll show you in a second, in fact now. So resources. Top link is resources to on our court of protect, uh, and mental capacity uh, resources on the Chamber's website, guides to assessment. Uh, best interest all the cases i've talked about you can find case law summaries there going down other resources i'll just highlight mental capacity law and policy.org.uk my website and on there one of the things is it's got an article um, called powers defenses and section five of the mental capacity act talking about when it's necessary to go to court always happy to be have things tweeted at me at capacity law or emailed at, at 
um, alex.ruckkeen at 39essex.com. I can't give advice on the facts of individual cases, but I'm always happy to point people towards resources. Thank you very much and good luck.